It's Wednesday, so you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. Hey, you can listen to me any day of the week. You can listen online at WRTFM.org, at the A Public Affair podcast, or on the WORT smartphone app. If you like what you hear, click the donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the Hello, hello everyone, and welcome to a public affair. It's Wednesday, so that means you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird, and I want to remind you, you are listening to a public affair on volunteer powered, listener sponsored community radio. WORT eighty nine point nine. FM Madison. We have a fabulous show lined up for you today. We are continuing our conversations with candidates that are on the primary ballot. Over the last uh, few weeks, we spoke with three of the candidates uh, running to be the next mayor for the city of Madison. And then starting today and continuing for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking with the candidates running for Wisconsin Supreme Court. That's all on the ballot coming up in just a few weeks. Tuesday, February 21st is that election. Um, We're going to get to our first conversation with one of those candidates for the second half of the show, Judge uh, Everett Mitchell will be joining us. But for the first half of the show, we're talking about the state budget. The process has begun every year, every two years. The excitement. Aha, I know you're all excited. Um, for the Wisconsin state budget, um, it actually is pretty exciting. And I think it's really important for us to remember what the process is, how we got here, and then what particularly is on the table um, for conversation for the upcoming biannual budget. So let's get that show started. We have two fabulous guests joining us today. First, we have Phil Rocco. He is an associate professor at Marquette University. Hi, Phil. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, what's up? Great to be here. Great to have you. And then we have Jessie O'Poyan. She is the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Cap Times. It's always great to have Jessie on again. Thanks, Jessie, for coming. Thanks for having me. So, Phil, why don't you kick us off? Can you just sort of tell us big picture what is the Wisconsin budget session sort of look like, as we said, every two years? What is the process? Okay, I, I want to begin by, yeah, just noting, I think in your intro, you kind of said, well, but budgeting can sort of, you imply that like budgeting can be kind of boring, but it's actually really important. And I would just underline that, like bud, you know, the state budget is really where most of the important policy decisions sort of get, get made um, every two years in the way that state government works. Um, and it really begins um, in the kind of even-numbered uh, year. So last year, agencies uh, of the Wisconsin state government submitted budget proposals uh, to the governor. The governor's office kind of takes those things, looks at them, and then develops a proposal of his own. And you heard probably some of what that's going to look like um, in the state of the state address, although right. the, I think the formal document isn't out yet. Um, then the governor sends his proposal to this really powerful committee in the state legislature called the Joint Finance Committee. Um, the Joint Finance Committee, uh, you know, prepares its own version. And that usually, at least when we have divided government, is, is sort of now the, the permanent norm uh, in Wisconsin. Um, that usually looks a lot different than the governor's budget. I think, you know, last uh, time around, it was about $5 billion or so dollars less in the governor's budget, um, as you can expect with sort of partisan uh, differences. Then it goes to uh, one of the other houses. Um, the houses develop a, of the Assembly uh, and the Senate developed a, a conference committee a version of the legislation. Then it goes back to the governor. And then it's not done at that point. The, you know, Wisconsin's governor uh, office has is sort of notable for having one of the most powerful kind of veto pens in the entire country, although that sort of power has been diminished uh, to some extent in recent years. Uh, but the governor still has the ability to strike a lot uh, kind of out of that budget um, at, you know, before it goes into uh, law. So that's really what we're going to see. And I think the, the, the most immediate thing people can expect is after the uh, governor's budget is released, um, the Joint Finance Committee is going to hold hearings in different parts of the state. And mm-hmm. that's actually a good opportunity for people to sort of get out there. I don't think that they've released their calendar uh, for those yet. But but keep in mind, that's going to happen um, over the next uh, few weeks to a month. 
And this whole process, in theory, is uh, takes around six months. It, it starts at the beginning of the year, which is where we are, where there's talk, but nothing official put out yet. And the goal is to have this passed by June. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think I think that's about right. Although in practice, it it can extend a lot longer. It can take a longer. Yeah. <laughs> you can't rush this exciting process. Um, and then Phil, can you talk to us about how? what's how this year is different than other years mainly um there's a budget surplus and i mean i wrote in my notes 7.1 billion and next to what i wrote what you know like holy holy 7.1 billion with a b is is that usual yeah it's not usual at all um it's it's pretty rare to see something even if there is a surplus um that it's it's quite this large and one way of thinking about this is like this is not uh, it's been suggested that this is uh, a budget surplus indicates that we're taxing people too much or that that there's sort of like a surplus of taxes. That's not true. Uh, we're at the lowest uh, uh, tax burden um, since we started recording those statistics. Um, okay. The reason for this wow. is that we have a sort of one time um, thing that happened, which is uh, over the last few years during the pandemic, Congress uh, passed a few major pieces of relief legislation uh, and, uh, you know, that resulted in billions and billions of dollars for uh, state and local governments in uh, Wisconsin. Uh, federal government also took on a larger share of uh, other kind of program costs through unemployment and Medicaid to some extent. And um, uh, at the same time, uh, the state has sort of uh, been pretty aggressive in uh, not uh increasing its spending if you think about revenue sharing to local governments that hasn't been adjusted for inflation since the middle of the 1990s so like that's sort of emblematic of the state not being super aggressive in in increasing its spending year over year yeah uh, adjusted for inflation and so what that leaves you with is uh a sort of one-time uh budget uh surplus and so naturally like you would think, oh, that's a great thing. But what that means is there's a lot of surface area for political conflict over how uh, they're going to use uh, the state's going to use that surplus. And, and that's are, probably, you know, that's that's what people are seeing. And Phil, are, are they going to. So I was on the county board for 16 years and we when we were working on the budget here in Dane County, we would sort of differentiate between one time funding versus funding that was really more permanent in the GPR. You can fund we were hesitant. We yeah. decided when I was on the county board, of course, they can change. But during my years, people, colleagues were hesitant to fund big program changes with one-time funding with the concern that you just had to cut it in the future. Are, are we hearing conversations or sort of differentiating between what <laughs> of the $7.1 billion is one-time versus what isn't? No, and that's a really important consideration. So th- th- it's, it's just sort of, it's not a a binding rule, but it's just sort of like good uh, uh, fiscal advice that fiscal officers would make. There's like, if you have one-time revenue uh, or a one-time surplus, um, it probably wise to invest that in ways that, you know, don't necessarily assume kind of some sustaining thing in the future. So for example, you know, uh, one aspect of the politics that, that I'm sure we can get into with Jesse here in a second is Republicans kind of proposal for uh, a flat tax mm-hmm. uh, kind of which which would mean uh, bringing uh, the tax rate for the top brackets uh, down to kind of below, I think, the, the lowest bracket right now, uh, which would mean a huge outflow of revenue, like losing five billion or something like that in revenue uh, every year. Now, that's going to take place in perpetuity. Right. Like forever, you know, until somebody repeat, uh, putatively like might repeal that law. Um, but what that means uh, is that you might not if, if in a surplus year, you might not see the effects of that right away on state services, for example. But in every successive year that that's you know, it's not like the, the surplus is permanent, uh, but the in that case, the flat tax would be. Mm-hmm. And so like mm-hmm. so it's really important to like the numbers have a way of confusing people yes. and because budgeting is boring. I think it is confusing, but it's really important to just like keep that in mind, kind of regardless of what's being proposed. The surplus is really sort of a one-time thing. Right. Right. Okay. That's really helpful. Thank you for sort of laying that out for us, Phil. And Jesse, I, I want you to sort of chime in here. What 
before we get into some specifics, what is the feel that's happening right now at the state legislature where you're on Capitol Hill on a regular basis? I mean, it's it's not dissimilar from years past, you know, despite the fact that this massive surplus exists. Um, I think a lot of the same dynamics are at play that always have been in divided government, which is that um, there's that kind of push and pull between Republicans looking at the pile of money and saying, send it back into people's pockets and Democrats looking at the pile of money and saying, send it back into programs throughout the state. Um, or send it back into education funding, send it back into local government funding. Now, one difference, though, is that there is some agreement on those two things that I just mentioned. Um, Republicans and Democrats both agree that local governments need more funding, that you know that they can't provide the level of services that they need to for things like public safety um, and other just basic services without some sort of increase and perhaps even some sort of you know overhaul in the way that those funds are, are allocated. Um, and the same is true of uh, K-12 education. Um, you know, Phil mentioned that that influx of federal funding and in the last round of budgeting, uh, the budget was able to really kind of do less with state dollars because of all of, or do more rather with fewer state dollars because of the federal money that was coming in with the understanding that, you know, that money isn't always going to be there. So in this next round of budgeting, the one that we're in right now, you're probably going to have to see an increase in mm-hmm. state spending on schools uh, to make up for uh, the I guess the cliff that you know that we're going to reach as those federal funds start to uh, to go away. So tell us about some of the specifics that you're hearing. Let's start with school funding, and I uh, I will note that uh, an article written uh, uh, by you, co-written by you, um, and Scott Gerard uh, just came out on uh, the Cap Times website, uh, talking specifically about the issues of school funding. And this has really been a contentious issue. Our governor, uh, the former superintendent of schools for the state of Wisconsin, uh, has been a huge proponent of putting more money in public schools. And where does does the Republicans that control the state legislature fall on that? And is the word public schools versus schools a key divider in that? Um, It can be to an extent. Um, Again, I think there is agreement that um, that public schools do need more funding um, on, on, by both parties. Um, you know, Senate, Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemihu, who's a Republican, I think probably said it best in that um, what the governor believes to be a massive increase is probably not the same as what Republicans in the legislature believe to be a massive increase in public school funding. Um, so, you know, when you say things like that, it could be you know, very subjective. Um, you know, the governor is looking at like $2 billion. I don't think you're going to see legislative Republicans get to that number. Um, But something that has been mentioned, I think, by um, Speaker Robin Voss particularly, is knowing that both sides aren't going to get what they want, right? Republicans aren't going to get an expansion to to universal school choice. Tony Evers is probably not going to get $2 billion in K-12 public school funding. Is there, are there ways that they can reach some sort of agreement? So can you um, try to, you know, reach parity between payment for uh, public school teachers and private school teachers? Can you make it easier for students to transfer from one school to another? Those are things that Republicans would be happy to see uh, in exchange for maybe meeting some of the governor's goals on um, those increases to public school funding. Um, you know, something that stopped happening quite some time ago was tying those increases to inflation. Um, it's uh, sort of the same thing as, as the gas tax and that I think a lot of people agree that it might be a good way to to fund those programs, but it's really going to be hard to get anyone to make that change now that it doesn't work that way anymore. Um, we'll probably hear some conversations about tying increases to the sort of the per pupil system. So trying to make the, the money follow the students as, as best as they can. And I want to, can you just break down for us what it means when you say tying money to inflation? It means that if if inflation goes up, like sort of the cost of living goes up, then the funding base goes up. Is, th- is that what it means? Right. And so there's um, there's something called you know revenue limits, which basically say the state can send as much money as they want to school districts, but if the school districts can't raise local taxes they can't really spend that money on the schools. It effectively amounts to a property tax cut. And that's how a lot of these things have worked in the past. So if you increase those revenue limits and tied some of those increases to inflation, the idea is that it would start to keep up with, like you said, the cost of living. Because um, if you if you look at 
the difference over over time. I mean, it, you're talking thousands of dollars per student that goes away when you don't meet that inflationary increase. And explain to me, I know I was reading your article just before our, our conversation right now, and it, it talked a little bit about increased state funding sometimes means, and you mentioned it right now, a decrease in property tax, so it's not necessarily more money. Is Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, you are. So that's um, this is how it worked in the last budget. Um, there was a pretty substantial increase in state funding allocated to public schools. But because those revenue caps weren't increased, the money amounted to a property tax cut. The schools couldn't spend that money. It just ended up being relief on local taxes. So if it's a, for example, if the revenue limit is school districts can spend $10 and the state gives you five, then they go to the property taxes for five. But if the state now gives you seven, it's not that now translates to they can go to property taxes for three. They have to actually ask for less from the property tax because their limit is still $10. Yes, that's, that's it. exactly it. You're, you're shifting the, the burden um, more toward the state than to you know local taxpayers. But at the end of the day, uh, it's not being spent directly on the school. And that's where the referendums have happened, where if you get more from from the state and you pass a referendum that allows you to go beyond the cap, then that gives you leverage. Yeah. And you know, mm-hmm. this was in, in our article, you know, when when those caps were starting to be implemented, the idea was exactly that, that, you know, schools could go to referendum if they need to. And at, at the time, I think you know, people in, in the capital didn't think that referendums would be popular, that taxpayers wouldn't want to vote to raise their taxes. But because of the environment we've seen over the last few decades, they've done exactly that. And they've been doing it in you know, really record uh, numbers over the last few years. Well, and I wonder if that's part of the translation now is to see both sides of the political aisle acknowledging something has to be done to our for, to support our public schools because these referendums have overall been passing by a, a decent majority across the state. It really shows that the voters in general support funding for our public schools. Would you? Is, is that or how else would you explain sort of the agreement that's existing now of we have to do something? No, I, th- I think that's exactly right. You know, obviously, um, state legislators hear from local officials. So they're probably hearing from their school boards. They're hearing from their county boards, city councils about you know, local government funding. And they're hearing the same thing about schools. But then they can, like you said, they can look at the results of those referendums. They can see. Um, you know, in some cases, it's year after year, the, the community is voting in support of these things. And y- you are hearing uh, lawmakers on, on both sides of the aisle referencing the referendums as a you know way of saying, yeah, this is probably something that needs to change you know, in one way or another. Again, it's more of a question, I think, about the, the dollar amount that they're going to be able to gr- agree on. Fabulous. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to flat tax. I spent way too much time in school funding, but that's okay. I, I really care about that issue. Um, talk to us about the flat tax proposal. W- what is it? Um, do, do we actually have something in writing yet? Um, and where does the Republican legislature and the governor stand on these two issues? Um, you know, I think this is going to be something where, again, uh, they're starting at their kind of you know, in their corners on in the bargaining you know stages, and maybe can reach somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, the governor's been talking about uh, applying a, a tax cut directed toward lower lower and middle income earners. Um, this Republican proposal, you know, we have a progressive income tax system right now. Those rates range from three point five four percent to seven point six five percent. And the idea with this proposal would be to phase it in over a few years to get everyone to. Um, two numbers have been floated about. One has been getting it down to that just that lowest rate of 3.5, but um, more recently the conversation's been about getting it even lower to 3.25. Um, it's not something that the governor is going to go for. He's made that pretty clear. Mm-hmm. So then the question is, are Republicans willing to, again, adjust that, find something that they can both agree on? Um, but, uh, you know, the, the thing that a lot of Republicans will point out is that it's there are states around us that are both Democratic and Republican that have flat taxes. Um, so they've been trying to kind of, I think, make that argument to try to get the governor on board. But I don't think he's going to budge on that one. So there might be some middle ground, but that's what we will 
wait to see and and pay attention to over the next few months to see, you know, where that lies out. Yeah, and we saw that happen, you know, again, in the last budget. Um, they, they did get to a, a point where there was a, you know, an adjustment in the tax code and a tax cut that Republicans wanted and the governor signed. And you know, we may see that happen again. I think we're just too early in the conversation to know, you know, have any idea what that would look like. All right. And then uh, Governor Evers also announced when he was doing his state of the state uh a speech, uh, I think just last week, that um, this was the year of mental health. What does that mean? And, and how do we think that be will be reflected in his budget proposal? Yeah, so the, um, the initial thing, I think the most significant thing that he mentioned is he wants to spend at least half a million dollars on mental health initiatives. And so a lot of that would be focused in particular on, um, on schools providing services for students. Obviously, we we know, we all know that uh, the pandemic took a pretty big toll on everyone's mental health. Um, we're seeing increases in um, you know, substance abuse issues, increases in overdoses. Um, the state just very recently set up uh, a suicide hotline and has received thousands of calls already just in a, a matter of months. Hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the evidence is there that, that there's a problem. Um, the governor proposed that $500 million dollars. Again, Republicans I think agree that you know, some funding here is needed. We've this has always been an issue that both parties agree on, and you know, in theory, that, that mental health is something that needs to be addressed and um, addressed in particular by the state. But um, you know, the initial reaction after the governor's state of the state address was that uh, five hundred million dollars was not going to be uh, a, a number that Republicans could get on board with. So, Phil, I want to turn back to you. Hearing all these specifics. How do you do, how does it play out now? Can you tell us a little bit more about sort of the the tour that happens um, where people can give inputs? And w- is there a point where people will be able to see some more specifics of what um, both sides are thinking about? Yeah, I mean, uh, so essentially we should be hearing fairly soon uh, on the sort of the, the detailed version of the, the governor's um uh, budget proposal, and then the Joint Finance Committee, you know, conducts these uh, hearings across the state, and I, that usually takes place in like late February and early March. Um, but I think that this is actually where the the rubber meets the road of these proposals, as, mm-hmm. as Jesse sort of noted. Like the the devil is often in the the devil, or I guess the angel is often in the details. Right uh, on paper, everything just sort of looks like numbers, but the real question is how. Um, people are able to advocate for, you know, what the policy content of those proposals is, you know, it's, it's um, uh, very different to have a, you know, 500 million versus 250 million for, uh, for mental health in terms of what you can do. Um, But that it ends up sort of being reduced to just sort of like a divide the dollar uh, kind of game of, of, of numbers um, at the point when the the budget is being debated. Um, And so that's sort of one of the interesting things that you look at, um, kind of nationally, which is that often like governors uh, are, even when they have a divided party government, uh, like we see in Wisconsin, they often get closer to their, you know, budget figure uh, than you might think, even in, in difficult partisan environments. But hmm. the the difference is they are more likely to win on uh, the, the total size of government, if you will, in terms of uh, dollars, than they are on specific policies. Of the policies. Right? Yeah. And, that, and, that's, and that's one of the, the features of the fact that uh, the budget is not just like one bill like any other. It's really the, the kind of way that uh, state governments like set the entire uh, policy agenda uh, for the state. And so I think you're going to see some differences in the politics. You know, if, if uh, the kind of mental health issue could be phrased really as a, a question about uh, resourcing and, and outfitting um, providers that are already providing these services rather than a, you know, big kind of uh, a divisive uh, policy debate. The governor might have, you know, more luck uh, in getting closer to his, to his final dollar figure. Uh, but of course, you know, it's the- contending with this, this uh, Republicans, uh, push for changing the way that the tax code works. And so you, I think that you will, even if uh, the debate on mental health is kind of consensual um, and consensus oriented, I think there that those conflicts might be because of competing priorities. Well, it's been really fabulous 
talking with the both of you and, and really hearing about all this. And of course, you know, I think there can even be a deeper dive of uh, one of the questions I didn't get to was to tell us more about, you know, what the veto pen looks like and how it is so unique in Wisconsin. But there's there's definitely you've definitely both laid out, you know, all the different issues that can still come up. And there's a lot at play. So it's just been great to have you both here to lay the groundwork of the conversation that's going to be happening in Wisconsin for the next several months. I appreciate it. Thank it was you. a great conversation. Thank you. It's been great, great being to with have you. you. Yes. So thank you so much again, Phil Rocco, Associate Professor of Marquette University. Thanks, Phil. And Jesse Opayan, um, who is the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Cap Times. Thank you both. And we'll be paying attention to everything we see in the Cap Times over the next few months. Thanks for uh, all your great work, both of you. So now we are going to take a quick break, and we have Judge Mitchell joining us in the studio. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk with him next. Old pirates, yes, they rabbi, sold I to the merchant ships. Minutes after they took I. From the bottomless pit But my hand was made strong By the hand of the Almighty We forward in this generation Triumphantly Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our minds Have no fear for atomic energy Hi, everybody. We are back in the studio singing along to Bob Marley. I hope you were, too. Um, I'm really excited to begin our conversations. As I said, we have had um, we are talking with candidates on the primary ballot. The election is coming up on Tuesday, February 21st, and we are kicking off our conversations with candidates with for Supreme Court, Wisconsin Supreme Court. Here joining me in the studio is Dane County Judge Everett Mitchell. Hello, Judge. Hey, Karen, sir. How you doing? So I'm glad to be here with you Wonderful. Today. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you. Yeah, I'd um, rather, this, is a, this is a wonderful interview to do on the start of Black History Month. So Hey. This is a way to do it. Bob Marley, Carousel, Black History Month. This is how we do it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's kick it off. Yes. Um, and I want to tell everyone a little bit about you. You've been right. a judge on the Dane County Circuit Court since 2016. You preside over the juvenile division as well as the high-risk drug court, um, among all the other judicial duties. And previously, you served as a prosecutor with the Dane County District Attorney's Office. And you're the former director of community relations for the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And you graduated from Morehouse College, Princeton Theology Cemetery, uh, Seminary. I know some people call it a cemetery, but it is seminary. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking too fast. Um, and UW-Madison Law School. Yes. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're running for Wisconsin Supreme Court. Yeah, I'm running because I really do believe our state deserves a justice that reflects the diversity of ideas of our entire state. And I run on this notion that justice is not simply what you say. Justice is what you do. And throughout my time here in Wisconsin, which I love Wisconsin because I, I always say I wasn't born here, but I chose it. I chose it to bring my talents and raise my children and my family here. But really just realizing that our courts really do, our courts and our communities really need to be able to have a choice of someone who follows the rule of law, who understands how to follow the rule of law, but also can provide significant leadership that we need in our state so that we can have a conversation about what justice and fairness needs to look like for our communities. And you've done some groundbreaking work on uh, the Dane County Circuit Court, particularly in juvenile justice. Can you talk to us a little bit about that work? To short, I, I don't think people always realize the role that uh, the judicial system and judges can play. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people understand that in in the, in the judicial role, especially in juvenile court, there's a lot of discretion. And so you have to bring your values to it. 
And so one of the things that I started out as soon as I got on the bench, I started realizing how many traumatized children we had in our system and we were moving them from one system to the next. Mm -hmm. So rather than talking about school, the prison pipeline, I talked about one that the court can control, which is a child welfare to juvenile delinquency to adult prison pipeline. And my commitment was to stop passing traumatized children from one system to the next and making sure that we were integrating trauma-informed practices into our court system. And that involved mental health services, listening to children, making sure that we have direct uh, you know, opportunities to talk to children and listen to them and see what they need. And as a result of that carousel, we've seen a significant decrease. We saw a 47 decrease in automob- automobile theft referrals from juveniles in Dane County. We have seen like 85% of our young people don't come back. Mm-hmm. And we went down from four judges to three in the juvenile rotation because, because we no longer have the cases to justify keeping four bodies in the juvenile rotation anymore. And so while we, while we also work with juvenile cases, you know, you know too that our also involves family court cases. I also do civil cases from personal injury law, family divorces, termination of parental rights, probate, small claims. And then because I do drug court, I also do our criminal cases as well. And I want to focus particularly on the the role of recidivism, the fact that you have had an impact. The policies that you've 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 implemented have really helped stop. Okay, the the youth are before me. These individuals are before me now. But let's make sure this is the last time ever. Yes. What are some of the policies and and how important is it that um, you had collaboration with other entities? You think so much of three separate branches of government and and judges are really sort of this silo but you've created this you know community feel in your courtroom yeah so you know i i firmly believe that judges and statute really does tell us this carousel that statute really says that judges can be in community and should be in community so when i saw that we were having such you know bad outcomes and we kept seeing kids coming back you know 10 15 cases I reached out to, you know, our community partners and I was able to partner with Anesis Therapy uh, run by Myra McNair and her team. And she was able to come in and, you know, contract with uh, our community, with the courts. And we were able to get some fantastic mental health services directly to these low income uh, communities as well as minority individuals. (laughs) And that made a huge difference off the bat, just being able to articulate treatment as 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 necessary, but also something that's no longer stigmatized. And I sometimes share, you know, with families, you know, I believe in therapy. I believe it's very helpful. I attend therapy. And once I start telling families, you know, your judge also attends therapy, it made them feel like, okay, okay, maybe this is not so bad. Designatize conversations about everybody's mental health. I'm in therapy. My kids are in therapy. Hooray. Yeah. Hooray for it, therapy. It's mental. mental and, health. you know. First of all, I want to I want to mention our phone number if anyone wants to join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. We will be talking with all the candidates for Wisconsin Supreme Court. And right now we are talking with Dane County Circuit Court Judge Judge uh, Everett Mitchell. You can give us a call at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. And Jade is in the studio, so she'll be able to patch you right up. Uh, area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. Um I want to talk about the yeah. importance. Go ahead. I just want to make sure I finish answering your question about yes, collaboration. Please. So, yes. <clears throat> so the collaboration is always with faith partners. It has been with law enforcement, specifically rank and file members. We have uh, school personnel, families. Uh, we, we also partner with uh, a lot of community-based organizations that are trying to do great work. We bring them into the courtroom. We even bring them into the Dane County Jail. Uh, where the juveniles are located. We, we do murals for the young people, so we bring artistic expression. There are opportunities for young people and families throughout the spectrum to really get some of these different services, all toward the idea that I do not want them to end up in the adult prison system. And so it may seem <clears throat> like it's a lot, but you know when you take a per- traumatized child who has seen some of the things that they have seen and experienced the abuses that they've experienced, it really is about giving them a different narrative. One of my favorite books is The, the Brain Keeps a Score, Body, Training, Body, Brain, and the Healing of Trauma. And he said in order to transform trauma, you have to, <clears throat> you have to give them an, a direct experiences that, dec- that directly contradicts the, the narrative of trauma in their minds. And so that's what we do. We try to give them a direct hmm. experience that is totally different than what they think the court system is going to be about. And just by listening... We've, we have found so many different pieces that make the court system seem more humane because I made it my commitment to say 
the courtroom need not be the most traumatizing place in people's lives. If anything, it needs to just be a place, but not adding more trauma. In fact, taking it away. Well, I mean, I think that's, I, I must say, revolutionary. I have had, you know, the privilege of, of uh, being an attorney here in Dane County and have been in, uh, I think, all 17 judges' courtrooms. And and I have, I represent uh disproportionately low-income individuals. And I work very hard just to try and convince my clients that the courtroom is a place where they can be heard. Mm -hmm. A courtroom, I hope I hope the courtroom is at least neutral, where they feel welcome. Um, and I think, the, I think all of our judges intend the courtroom to feel neutral, but it doesn't come off that way. Mm -hmm. And in your courtroom, not only am I not worried that it won't be a neutral place. It has this sense of welcoming. Tell to me about how important it is to have set that up in your courtroom and to make sure the judicial um, system is something where everyone um, has a voice that can be heard and part of the conversation. Well, see, that's what I mean, uh, Carousel, when I talk about experiences, like people having different experiences. Like I know what it's like to be in places where people prejudge you they look at your skin and they make assumptions or the fact that you don't have income and resources and they discount you completely, right? And so I've had all of these experiences from being homeless to being a kid who couldn't read and, you know, you know, not having money and resources like everybody else growing up. When you grew up without money and you grew up poor, you feel the weight of people judging you because you don't have what everybody else has. So when I have power, which is a judge, you have the power to set the environment so that other people don't have to feel like that. So I don't care how much money they have or don't have. They there. And so I want them to know that they're, whatever issue they're bringing to me, however they're bringing it to me, is an issue that I'm going to take a moment to pause, to listen. Because sometimes the anxiety that people are experiencing is because they are so afraid that they won't get hurt. But the moment you listen, you see all that anxiety. Like I don't like for me personally as a judge, I don't use terms like defendant. I use names. I call them by the last name. Even though I'm going to sentence you to prison, I'm going to sentence you using your name. I'm going to talk to you. I'm explaining why I'm doing what I'm doing because I think that returns a love of humanity and also makes sure that the victims understand these are the reasons why I'm doing this to this individual, you know, because you don't want the, you don't want to strip that humanity from them even though you're sentencing them. Like that doesn't help restore the justice in the long term. So you give it to them. And then quite honestly, because I'm in the community, I have to be very careful because, you know, I go get my hair cut down the street on East Wash. And I've had people come up to me and say, man, you know, you sent us my cousin. And I don't know where that conversation is about to go. <laughs> <laughs> and, but he said, but you, you, you treated him with respect. And I, we got love for that. So thank you. So that's the kind of reaffirmation that it doesn't No, it doesn't look like how other people treat. They may treat their courtrooms. They ain't counting. We're lucky. But it is a reminder that if we are in community, our true reflection is how people perceive our work uh, rather than us, you know, you know, kind of patting ourselves on the back when we're at the end of the day. So your race for Wisconsin Supreme Court, what do you hope to achieve from the Supreme Court? Are you able to take the experience and the success that you've had on Dane County and, and you know, share that and maybe implement that on a statewide level? Yes, that's, the, that's what I think most of our listeners, they think that, you know, Supreme Court just deals with cases. And I'm telling them, no, Supreme Court does. It's the administrative body for all courts throughout our state. So yes. whether it's budgeting, setting, you know, judicial education paradigms, you know, making sure that they have committees that are being pulled together to address some of the key issues that are important to our state. So it's there's a whole litany of leadership off the bench that the Supreme Court is involved in. And that is a place where I think all these different experiences, what has been made possible, I will tell you, Carol Self, it's almost like I'm having two races at the same time. It is a race for, you know, our major issues, reproductive choice, make, focusing on, you know, voting maps and paying attention to voting access. But it's also this whole other community that is concerned about justice and fairness and how people are not treated fairly in courts throughout our state and how so many communities, particularly like the ones you represent, they just don't feel heard. They don't yeah. feel like their cases are being accepted or respected or being treated fairly. So it's like I'm, I'm running two races at the same time or two different priorities are being, uh, you know, manifested as I go through this race. And so sometimes it seems like they're in conflict with each other, especially on the liberal side. So I'm always still trying to find a message that makes sense to understand we have both opportunities to get accomplished, you know, and that's why I'm running, because I can put 
full energy and effort into what I've done because I've already been successful both on the bench but also in my work in the community. What response are you getting from the community as as you tour the state? Because that that is so important. You you can do both at the same time, and we've seen your success at doing both at the same time in Dane County. Yeah, I think that's what that is really what is igniting people around the state. Yes, there's a concern, and we rightly have concern about reproductive choice. I think most. Wisconsinites felt for the first time how their voices can be stricken by these maps that have been, you know, been gerrymandered in such a way where they lose their voice. They can vote, yes, but right. they've lost their but voice. It's a, right. Well, <clears throat> when one party is the majority of voters, but the other party gets the majority of seats, that that's very concerning. Exactly. And yet, and yet, it is something that we knew, like, you know, those of us who studied law understood that, <laughs> but the majority of Wisconsinites didn't feel it. This last election, they felt it. And they felt the pain of losing their voice in their communities and the representation that they've had at the state level for, you know, for a long time. So it is a reception. And I think what what I would love for your listeners to hear is that our state is not a racist state. It is not. I have been so surprised at the many places that I go many times by myself, engaging voters, talking to them in bars and barbershops and coffee shops and they have just been so eager to have this conversation. And I don't even ask whether they're liberal or Republican or Democrat. I, don't, I just start talking. Right. And we have these very great conversations about what you just talked about, an experience that they had that they felt like they were not heard, or their child or their grandchild or their cousins or something like that. And they just wanted to be able to say, will we be able to have a justice that we know and trust will be fair? That's what we want, independent and fair. Can you promise me that, Judge Mitchell? And I said, that's all. That's what I've always done, and that's what I always continue to do. And you sort of hinted a little bit at the concerns that I'm hearing from p- people that are Democratic voters and progressives that are that see what happens w- with the last race, where they felt there was racism involved in um, the the election or the loss of Mandela Barnes. Mm-hmm. And I definitely, I mean, I know you know this, but I and I wonder if our listeners do too this is definitely part of the conversation when i say hey who are you voting for wisconsin supreme court Mm -hmm. so how do you how do you address that where it's sort of the fear of racism that is motivating um voters sometimes so i see i I tell them man we can't you know liberals can't be about dog whistling like we can't in one hand you know blame republicans for dog whistling but we do it the same Mm -hmm. that's dog whistle and it's is meeting into people's fears. You know, we should be at a place where we are voting for the best candidate and that we need. And quite honestly, it wasn't the ass that brought down uh, Mandela's candidacy. It was a Republican who's bragging about the fact that he was a- they were able to effectively suppress 37,000 votes out of Milwaukee by, you know, suppressing Latinos and blacks from being able to come to the ballot box. Yep. He-, he was bragging about it like, and got a chance to correct it, went on TV, still said the same thing. It is that intentionality to push down the vote that also costs the ability for that core group not to be able to move into it. So, again, I say, you know, if we are truly progressive, we have listened to what Dr. King said, right? We will one day live in a nation where we will be judged not by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. It is the content of who we are that we should be paying attention to, not the color of our skins. And I always tell people, you know, for those who are afraid, I tell, think about Justice Abrahamson. You know, she was the one who who gave me my fight and my spirit about being a judge. She was the one that I met with that, you know, when I was just starting out a judge and I was pushing to get handcuffs off of kids and they asked me to take Justice Abrahamson back to Madison. And I was just venting like, I'm like, oh, I'm so stressed out. It'll never happen. It's never going to happen. And she reached out, grabbed my hand, her little, little hand grabbed my hand. He said, what do you think it was like to be a short Jewish woman running against all men? What about if what if somebody had told her, well, Shirley, you know, Women have never done it before, so we just need you to give up. <clears throat> we just need you to just throw in the towel and just say it never. But they're going to come all kind of sexist ass against you, so you just need to give up. She didn't give up, and because she didn't give up, the majority of our Wisconsin Supreme Court are women right now. Regardless of what you think about the ideologies, it's a representation of women and the strength that women have and what they have to be able to access the law itself. That 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 is what I am arguing to our progressive groups that this is what legacy looks like. Sometimes somebody has to be the first and you got to be there to support regardless of what history has said in the past. We're talking right now with uh, 
Judge Everett Mitchell. He's a candidate to be the next member justice on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. If you'd like to join the conversation, we're happy to hear from you at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. Um, there's a concern. So we've talked about courts being accessible and, and some people feeling that courts belong to them and some people don't. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also another concern um, that I th- maybe everybody has of the partisanship of our courts, feeling that courts aren't accessible because a decision has already been made. How do you address that? Do you think our court system is fair and welcoming or is it partisan? So I always, I always try to separate two conversations. One, you know, a Supreme Court conversation is different than a circuit court conversation. Yes. And, you know, and, okay. I, and but in some ways, circuit court still can be partisan because just depending, you know, people will venue shop because they know what particular judges may rule in particular areas. But I think partisan is a part of what is probably destroying the integrity of our court system in general. Uh, and I think no matter whether it's left or right, the feeling that people believe is that, man, you're going to get somebody who's just going to listen to their party is really eroding that sense of independence. I mean, the fact that Justice Hagedorn is the one that, you know, can flip back and forth is is one that gets us into a place where we are often looking for that sense of independence because they want to believe that people will sit down, look at the rule of law and not have, you know, somebody on their shoulder whispering, this is the decision you're supposed to make. But I will say that this has taught me that if we really are concerned about getting partisanship out of these races, we really have to look at how it's funded and look at the ways in which we try to fund these judicial races because whether it's internal money to our state or outside money coming in, you're asking us to raise a whole bunch of money to be on TV. Yeah. Right? And yet you want us to, you know, commit ourselves to either recuse ourselves or be partisan. That Those are contradictions of purposes. And you that, need all these entities to be successful, but then you've collaborated with these entities, how can you be objective? It's, yes. it's contradictory it a is, little it bit. Is, it is so contradictory. So We have a caller coming in. Susan, you had a question uh, for Judge Mitchell or a comment. Yes, uh, Judge Mitchell, I recently heard you in uh, Spring Green mm. and was very struck by your thoughtful comments and your emphasis on uh, being humane uh, towards others and and the importance of that in the courtroom. So I want to thank you for that. It was it was very moving. Now um, I I am part of a political group in Mazomani that meets on a regular basis, and we would like to bring you in as a speaker. <laughs> and I can't get a okay. phone number for your campaign. No. So <laughs> sorry to use up time here, but. But um, who can I contact uh, to uh, talk with them about uh, getting you uh, to speak with us? All right. Thanks, Susan. Yes, Sean at Judge Mitchell. Sean at Judge Mitchell for Justice dot com. And we'll I mean, we'll I asked this at the end of the show, but we're going to I'll take advantage of Susan's question and and ask you right now. How can people learn more about your campaign? Yeah. Go to uh, www.judgemitchellforjustice.com and you will find all kinds of articles and publications. Uh, my team and I are going to release 20, 20 things that Judge Mitchell has contributed to our state. So you can look at all these different things that I've accomplished and in one little document. So that gives people a sense of when we ask about leadership, what that looks like. You know, you have concrete examples of what that will look like. And when I come to Mosamani, just like I did for Spring Green, we'll have a great conversation about what justice and fairness looks like and, you know, the role of what the courts can become for our communities. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, it looks like we have another caller coming in. Fawn, you wanted to join the conversation? What are your thoughts, Fawn? You bet. Hi, my name is Fawn. I'm a member of Moses and Justice Mitchell. I am so impressed. The first time I ever heard you speak, I was blown away. We, you spoke from Moses in, uh, at our gala, and I've been, you've been my hero ever since. I've been, I'm your biggest fan. And I just want to say, you've done such brilliant things of integrating community and the and the work of the role of the Justice Department and bringing and just bringing your humanity and honesty and um, integrity and respect, as you've described, to the bench. I want to know how come, with all these 
radical successes that you've had of reducing recidivism, reducing you know, trauma, like a treating, actually treating trauma in juveniles and reducing the need for just the, for juvenile um, court cases, more judges. How come that's not front page, news, front page news? How come I don't hear about that? <laughs> uh, we should be promoted like that should be trumpeted. We forget all the bad news. It should be on the front page of every newspaper. Thanks, Vaughn. We're, ju- we're 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 low on time, so we want to make sure Judge Mitchell. I mean, to hear Fawn's excitement and these callers' excitement, you're really touching a nerve when you're talking to people. Yeah, the the more we talk to people, the more it makes sense. I think it it gives people permission because you know this carousel. Like you know, there's a lot of past progressive people can make up stuff in their head. But when you actually sit down and have conversations, people are like, oh, this is we can thoughtfully work through these. Even if they dis- even if we disagree, we still can have a thoughtful conversation. And I agree with Fawn. It is very interesting when, you know, we pitch these stories about can you tell a positive story about a reduction in theft, a yeah. reduction in the use of, you know, you know, it's crickets. <clears throat> and. Yeah, you know, what I try to explain to our community, one of the things that's driving me, Carol said, you know, they went up, the Department of Corrections started charging $1,154 a day to incarcerate a juvenile. That's $421,000 a year. So when they went up to that, you know, both our counties are paying for that, our cities are paying for that, and they go after reimbursement for families for that. Right, right. <clears throat> so I'm like, that's that's not a good use of our dollars, our county and our city dollars, to be sending money that should be going to human services for other projects or other things that we could be doing for families to be having kids locked up. So what's the alternative? Let's do it up front rather than on the backside and then, you know, going to half a million dollars a year to incarcerate a child. Well, it's clear that the work that you've done not only is keeping us safe, um, but is also saving money. I mean, it's it's a win-win in all directions. All directions, all directions. That's a, and that is that's a story that I would love for our media to be able to tell. What um, in our, in our final moments here, talk to us about w- what the next steps are of of on your campaign and on your race, and how can people uh, get to know you more. Well, we're going to start posting videos on our social media profile. You know, we're not going to raise a whole bunch of money like my other opponents to be able to do that. So it's going to be important that we get our message out, use digital media, social media to make sure we hit our messages every place. I just want people to make sure that they open to the idea of listening to the notion of something different and not allow the dull whistle of fear to rob us of our potential of only making history. I've been telling people February 21st is an opportunity to make history in black history. So... I'm looking forward to continuing to represent our state and giving our state a different vision of what they've seen in the past. We're going to move forward, not backwards. Well, it's been fabulous. It's quite an honor. Thank you so much for joining us here in the studio. Thank you for all your work. And I hope you have a wonderful Black History Month. There are lots of things on your upcoming agenda, I'm sure. Yes, it is. I'm excited. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you again so much, uh, Judge Everett Mitchell, uh, Dane County Circuit Court Judge and candidate for Wisconsin Supreme Court Judge. Uh, Election is coming up on February uh, 21st, Tuesday, February 21st. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Again, you are listening to WORT 89.9 FN Madison. Next week, we will continue our conversations with other candidates running for Wisconsin Supreme Court. Um, a huge thank you to Jade and Shally for getting this show together, and we'll see you again next week, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Wisconsin. Bye-bye. We come and listen and support it. Live and direct, we come and never be recorded. With information that will never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and support it.